Hello, and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is proudly sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. Go and check out why Gamesurplus.com should be your first choice when it comes to buying board games online. They have a fantastic selection and a sterling reputation. That reputation is derived from years of fantastic and personal customer service. The kind of customer service that people come back for. When someone pays attention to what you're looking for and what you need, uh, that makes you want to go back to them. It builds loyalty. Uh, I'm loyal to Game Surplus because they always can find whatever it is I'm looking for, no matter how difficult it is to find. Whether I'm looking for an import or whether I'm looking for something that's been released here in the U.S., I know that if I send an email to Games at Game Surplus and ask Velma to find it for me, she and uh, her family will do everything they can to grab it for me as quickly as they can at a very reasonable price. Um, you know, they don't extort you for the imports here. Um, you know, they, they charge you a, a fantastic price. And then they get it shipped off to you really securely, very well packaged, and it's just a fantastic experience. So for anybody out there who's listening that hasn't tried Gamesurplus.com, please be sure to do so. And if you do order from them, please be sure to tell them the long you sent you. I also want to take a moment to announce a special new promotion uh, that's going to be going on courtesy of the kind folks at Gamesurplus.com. Uh, they have a beautiful copy of Flick 'em Up. Um, this is the wooden edition and the beautiful wooden box uh, made by Pretzel Games. And uh, this is just a huge uh, amount of fun uh, as a dexterity game. Uh, it's a dexterity game that's got a fantastic theme. Um, you have the outlaws. You have the sheriff and the deputies. You have an actual town that is set up. You have cactuses. You have barrels. You have all kinds of obstacles in your way as you... You make your way down Main Street there and shoot them up. Uh, there are scenarios, so it's like scenario-based, and there's a, an exciting new expansion coming out here at Gen Con. So this is a fantastic game, a lot of fun. I own it myself. It is my favorite dexterity game at this point. I like it better than Rampage. Uh, I like it better than uh, just about any other uh, dexterity game that I've played because the theme comes through so incredibly strongly. So this is a great opportunity for somebody to win a free copy of the game shipped anywhere in the world. Um, if it's uh, in the United States, it's going to be free. If it's anywhere else in the world, uh, we're going to pay the first $15 worth of the shipping for you. So this is a chance to win Flick'em Up. So how do you do it? Well, it's really easy. What I'm asking people out there who are listening to do is uh, start a hashtag. The hashtag we're going to start is Game Surplus Imports, the number four and the letter U. So Game Surplus Imports for you. Um, this is really what they're most known for. And we want to try and build up a little bit of buzz and a little bit of a, a record of all of the great things that Game Surplus has done for people out there. So if you have uh, used Game Surplus in the past and you have a story that you'd like to tell on Twitter, uh, go ahead and just make a little post and then use the, has uh, the hashtag Game Surplus Imports for you. And let people know why um, it's, it's such a great experience for you. If you haven't used Game Surplus, 
us, um, then perhaps you could uh, look and, and see if there's something that you're looking for and use the hashtag as well and, you know, direct people and say, hey, you know, think about going over to Game Surplus if you're looking for an import game and use the hashtag. If you've never ordered from them before, maybe give them a shot and see what all the fuss is about here on this show. And then you'll have a story that you can post using the hashtag Game Surplus Imports for You. So we're going to run this contest until the end of the month. And when I say we, I'm talking about myself and the good folks over at Cardboard Insanity, uh, which is a wonderful uh, little podcast. If you haven't heard about it yet, you should definitely check them out. And they're going to be collecting entries via the same hashtag. And then what we'll do is we'll go in, we'll search the hashtag at the end of the month, and we're going to use random.org to pick a random user. Uh, That person will then be the winner, uh, regardless of where they are, whether it's here, whether it's in Australia, whether it's in Alaska, we don't care. Whether it's in Denmark, it doesn't matter. You're going to get a copy of Flick 'em Up by Pretzel Games, the beautiful woodcase edition um, from the kind folks at GameSurplus.com. So the hashtag, once again, is all one word. It's GameSurplus Imports, the number four and the letter U. Thanks for listening to these details, and good luck. The Longview is also a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go and check out all of the great sister podcasts on the Dice uh, Tower Network. Uh, There is truly something there for everybody. Uh, It's a huge array and assortment of board game information, news, and entertainment. Uh, In addition, of course, you've got all the great reviews from Tom and Z and uh, Eric and the whole gang. Uh, And, of course, the Dice Tower podcast itself, as well as the video reviews, a searchable database. Um, If you're looking for information about a game, there's really no better place other than board game geek to go uh, to find information about a game that you're thinking of purchasing. So go check out Dicetower.com and see what makes them so special. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View. And tonight I am very pleased to be joined by a new voice once again. Um, he's known as uh, Gene Paul Viking on Board Game Geek. And Gene was kind enough to reach out to me and say, hey, you know, I'd like to talk about the game Acquire. And I thought to myself, oh, wow, what a great one uh, that we haven't done yet. Um, Acquire is actually one of the first games I ever played when I got back into the hobby. Um, My buddy Justin, uh, I went to my first WBC, and uh, that's the World Board Gaming Championships here in Lancaster. Well, it used to be in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Now it's at the Seven Springs Resort. And uh, I met Justin at the WBC, and he said, I've got a game for us. And, you know, I was all excited. I had Container. That was, you know, one of the first games that I played when I got back into the hobby. And I had Container. And Justin pulled out a choir. And so we sat and we played a choir. It was the first game I played at the convention with my wife. And so I have a lot of memories uh, about a choir. But that was actually the first time I had ever played it. So we're only talking about, uh, what, about six, seven years ago. That, uh, well, it's probably a little longer than that. But, yeah, some somewhere in there that I I played a choir for the first time. Um, In pre-recording conversations with Gene, uh, Gene's been playing this since he was a kid. And Gene, you said you thought you'd played this maybe even close to a thousand times. Is that true? Yeah, since I was a kid, I played uh, digital versions. I played uh, versions with all kinds of versions with friends. It is just an amazing game. Well, I want to thank you for reaching out and saying, hey, you know, let's talk about this, because it is a classic. I mean, Acquire is a game that goes back, looking at the BGG database for it, to 1964. 
Um, this is a Sid Saxon design. It doesn't get more classic than that. Uh, there have been many, many editions of this game. Um, some of them are highly sought after. Um, there's, there's been the, the bookshelf version of the game, uh, you know, that kind of 3M bookshelf version. There's versions of it that have like little buildings. There's real basic versions that kind of have just this plastic grid with these little plastic tiles. And then there's versions that have wood, I understand, like little wooden tiles and whatnot. Um, yeah, there's some gorgeous versions out there. Um, I, I guess where I'm, what I, 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 my personal favorite is the 1999 Hasbro one with the big plastic chunky tiles and you can put the little buildings on top of them. They're beautiful. Yeah, I've seen pictures of it, but that's about as close as I've ever gotten. Um, you know, this game is for three to six players, which is one of the reasons why I didn't go to it when I first kind of got back into the hobby because, uh, you know, originally it was just my wife and I, and, you know, you really couldn't play this with two. And a lot of people think it's best with like four or five players looking at the ratings and also from, you know, my own limited experience with the game. Um, and so, you know, this is one that kind of uh, I've wanted to kind of talk about, but haven't really had the chance. So I want to thank you, Gene, for being willing to come on the show and talk about Acquire. Absolutely. So, you know, my backstory, I kind of shared a little bit. So what got you so interested in this game and what made you so interested in it that you've played it this many times and still enjoy it? Well, you're going to laugh, but when I was a kid and I discovered a choir, it was as a computer game back in the early DOS games. And I didn't know when I was like, oh, I couldn't have been more than like 12 or 13, that it was a board game. <laughs> oh, jeez! <laughs> like I thought, I thought that um, they had like made this amazing computer game that I don't know how to describe how basic this thing looked back in the <laughs> DOS days. But I mean, I mean, it looked as as basic as it could look and still work. Does that right. make sense? Oh, sure. Yeah, a lot of those early games I remember playing uh, on the computer, and and they were. They were very quaint by today's standards, I think oh, yeah. is a nice way to put it, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, it was so very basic that, um, I, I mean, the only thing that shined about this game back then was the rule set and how it worked. And I was fascinated. And I just started playing this game. I showed it to some of my friends and... Uh, there was a, a hack, honestly, that would let you play it multiplayer the way you were supposed to be able to play it, as opposed to just against the computer. Nice, nice. So, um, I don't think that was a standard software choice, but there you go. No. <laughs> so, anyways, it kind of was one of those things where, yeah, we kind of got together and, and we, we played this on the computer. We thought we were playing this novel computer game that no one had ever seen before. And so I get a little older and, like, Someone pulls out a board game version of this, right? And I'm like, oh, so they made a board game out of the computer game. And they look at me like I'm nuts because, of course, <laughs> you know. Right, right. And I'm like, uh, hey, dude. Um, really? This is this is a board game? And I'm like, yeah, it's always been a board game, stupid kid kind of thing. And you're like, oh, <laughs> you know. And so you kind of grow up and you find it. Hey, this... This actually went the other way around. <laughs> but, yeah, I started playing it then. And the thing about the game that you're not going to find in 
any other game is the way it moves. And it has, um, I hate to compare it to Go, because Go is a very deep game, and this is not as deep. Well, it's pretty deep, but not that deep. But it does have a Go-like quality, and that is the rule set is extremely simple. But actually, understanding how to play is not even hinted at in the rule set. Right. And it's actually pretty complex to understand not just how to win, but even how you won. I've literally seen players who do not know what they're doing playing this game, finishing the game up, one person wins, and they all look at him and they say, you won, how did you do that? And he says, I don't know. (laughs) Yes, yes. I I can honestly say, Gene, that I have have had that experience myself. I have been one of those people that either win or lose, you know, I, I kind of look and I say, you know, huh, you know, I, I don't really know what happened there. Um, you know, and I think it, it was, you know, the result of some uh, mergers uh, that, that I can point to. And but, you know, I think I just got lucky on the tile flip. You know, I, I got lucky on that. And, you know, that kind of in, in my limited experience with the game was one of the things that kind of that kind of turned me off to it. Like, in other words, I kind of attributed uh, a lot of what happened in that game to the sort of the, the, the luck of the property tiles that you end up getting, which dictates where you can kind of place things and do things on the board. And so that was something that, you know, I kind of looked at and said, oh, well, you know, it, it, this game has too much luck for me. So I'm going to be curious to see, like, you know, how I'm not approaching the game from the right way, because, you know, any game that's been around since 1964 and is as popular as this one still is, there must be something I'm missing. I just haven't found it yet. So what I'd like to do, Gene, is ask you, just for people out there who might not uh, have had experience playing the game um, or, ha- like me, haven't played it in a while, could you just kind of give like a brief overview of that simple rule set so that people kind of understand what we're talking about as we move forward here. All right, I'm going to describe it from the most basic, cheapest version they have out there right now. And the reason I'm going to do that is because while it, it looks bad, honestly, the current version is cheap, but it does not look good aesthetically. Um, I believe you can get it for like 20 bucks or less on Amazon. <laughs> But um, the reason I'm going to use that one is because it strips everything away that might distract you. And essentially, the core of the board is uh, a grid. And this grid has a letter-number combo, like A1 or A2 or B3 kind of thing. Right. And in this grid... um, they actually take it out to where you have so many tiles one way and so many tiles another. This is the play board. It looks as boring as you can imagine it looking, and it doesn't even begin to imply the fun you can have with this game. Okay. Um, you have, shockingly enough, matching tiles. These tiles, um, same thing, A1, A2, etc., each person at the start of a game, when the game for the game starts, draws one tile. The person who has the lowest letter number combo, starting with A1 and moving up, that plays first. They all place their tiles though on the board. So these are your seed tiles, if you will, to get things right. kind of started. 
Like your starting position, yes? Oh uh, no, no. Uh, this has nothing to do with your starting position. They're just seed tiles. It doesn't okay. affect doesn't affect you at all. Anyways, um, so these seed tiles go on the board, and the person who had the lowest number letter number combo does get to go first. Everybody draws six tiles. The newest version has little tile holders for them, which are nice. The fancier editions. Well, honestly, the tiles are so thick you can stand them up in front of you, so you don't need tile holders, which is really nice. But either way, um, you have essentially, if you will, a hand of tiles, similar to if you've ever played a card game, you have a hand of cards to choose things from. Absolutely, yep. All right. So you have this hand of tiles. Now, when you place a tile on the board, if it's placed beside another tile orthogonally, not diagonally, it forms a connection. If it's not a previous hotel, if there's nothing else there, it creates a hotel chain. Now, what you're doing in this game, if I wasn't clear, is you're building hotel chains. So, if you put one tile orthogonally beside another, you now have the start of a hotel chain, and you have seven different chains to choose from. And each person at the start of the game got a little chart. And it looks complex, and it's the simplest thing you've ever seen once you really look at it. The chart basically has two hotels that are on the low end, two hotels that are on the high end, three hotels that are somewhere in the middle. And for different versions, those hotels will have different names or even be moved around a bit. But essentially, that's what it is. The stocks in the low end cost less. The stocks in the high end, shockingly enough, cost more. The stocks in the middle level, sort of lower than the high, but higher than the low. So with that in mind, the um, player chooses which hotel chain to start. Now, if they placed a tile next to another near the edge of the board, and they're not near anything else, the strategy is to always start with a cheaper hotel. And the reason is, is because the only way you get money in this game is you get money at the start of the game. You get $6,000. And the only way you ever, ever get back any money at any point in the game, in the future, is to have someone else buy out your hotel right so that's that's a big deal because there are people who will lock up all their money in a hotel chain and grow it and then they have no capital and capital is huge so when you have essentially placed one let's say you decide to start one near the edge um maybe you pick out one of the cheaper ones you build that Let's say later you have an opportunity to start one next to it, and what's more, you happen to know you have the merging tile. Or you don't, but you think one of your opponents might based on how they're playing. You might start one of the more expensive ones in hopes it'll merge in. And you'll know if they're wanting to merge a hotel because during their turn everyone gives an opportunity to buy stocks. And if you see someone buying stocks heavily in a given chain, yeah, that's not random. They're doing something. Right, right. Yeah. So you need, this is a game that's not just about the strategy of what tiles you have, and it's not just about what stocks you buy that's best in the moment tactically, and it's not even just about the strategy you need to build long-term for a chain, but this is a game where you must watch your opponents. Not only will what they do change the game state of the board, sometimes dramatically, but honestly, how they buy stocks will forecast what they're going to do if you're paying any attention at all. Now, when one chain is merged into another, 
if one is smaller, the small one's always merged into the larger. If there's equal size, though, the person who placed the tile that caused the merger gets to decide which one gets merged into the other. And the same rule applies if it's multiple chains, like say three merging in. The smallest merges into the large one first, and the next, and so on. So, um, From the person who placed the merging tile, um, you go around the board after everyone receives their bonuses. And I'll go over the bonuses in a moment, but I'll, I'll just get, well, actually, I'll do the bonuses first, come to think of it. So first you go around and you basically tell everybody at the entire table, okay, now you have to reveal your stocks that you had in the hotel that's being bought out. Now, at this point, everybody counts their stocks. So let's say you had nine and I had six. You would be the majority shareholder. Right. The majority shareholder gets a large lump sum. The cost of a stock, as well as the sum amounts that are paid out, are based upon how large the hotel is. So the larger the hotel gets, the bigger the sum we're talking about. This is same true for buying stocks as well as for the payouts. The person who has the second most gets the minority. So they have a minority shareholder stake, which is about half that of what the majority shareholder gets. If there's a tie for the majority shareholder, there's no minority paid out. If there's not a tie for the majority, but there is a tie for the minority, um, then they just split it up. And as far as the majority, if there's a tie for that, the majority split up as well. Um, it's rounded down if there's a question. Um, the sums of the game, if you're curious, are 100s, 500s, 1,000s, and 5,000s. Okay. So, anyways, when you have this situation, you then go around the table, starting from the person who merged, and from that person around the table, the next person to their left, and then sewing gets to decide what they want to do with their stocks. They have three choices. They can hold their stocks and hope that chain comes back out later. They can sell their stocks at current value when that chain was merged in, which, you know, sometimes you need the cash. And they can trade their stocks in at a two-for-one ratio into the larger chain, which Sometimes that's a pretty good deal. Sometimes large chain is so expensive that buying it is prohibitive, but trading in makes a lot of sense. Right, right. I actually remember that. Yeah, absolutely. So these are your various options you can do. Now, what you'll do um, depends on a lot of things. The first thing is if you're not the majority or minority shareholder, you want to get out of that stock, period. Because if they hold on to their shares, you're never going to compete with them. And you make the real money in this game by being that minority or majority shareholder. If you are not one of those shareholders, yes, you'll see an increase in value of your stock if the chain grows. But it's not enough to type your capital and make it worthwhile. You need to sell or trade. You should not hold that stock ever. If you are one of those shareholders, you really are looking at a different question. You're looking at the question, if you're the majority, you need to, need to get rid of some as well. If you don't, and there's not enough shares left when someone comes to purchase the stock later, no one's going to want to start that chain up later again because they know they're giving you free money. <laughs> right, right. Nobody so, wants to do that. <laughs> right. Nobody's, you know, people are though. So to some extent, as the majority shareholder, you need to make a decision like, how much of my stock do I need to get rid of? Do I need to trade this in? Do I need to sell this? 
um, what do I need to do? That doesn't mean you don't hold on to any, but you're just kind of trying to figure out how much you can get away with and still hold, and people are going to start the chain up for you again. Because many times in the game, there will be times when other people can start your chain, the chain you have the stocks in, and you want them to do that. Because if they don't, you can have all the stock in the world. If you're still at the end of the game, it's just gone. Right, yeah, and if you... And that might be one of the mistakes that I was making because if there's not enough stocks to make it attractive to start that chain up again, you know, you having a handful of that stock really doesn't do anything for you, yes? That's exactly right. And that's the risk of holding the stock. If at the end of the game it comes down and, and you were holding the stock for a chain that doesn't exist, you know, it's just like any other stock or commodity market, it's gone. Now, um,. With that in mind, the other strategy, if you're a minority shareholder, is generally to hold. Because the majority shareholder needs to sell. The minority shareholder doesn't hold as much. So if the minority shareholder holds, there's a chance they could have a chance to compete with the majority shareholder next round when it comes up again. Right. So the, minor, uh, the minority shareholder of today is the possible future majority shareholder and and that's going to really be to their advantage then to try to hold on to as much as they can right absolutely um, i've seen plenty of situations where players have made two different mistakes and the one i already identified which is where they hold too many shares and nobody wants to start the chain from again and they they assume they need to get lucky to start the chain with the tiles you don't need to get lucky. You just need to make it attractive to other people to start the chain. And you aren't going to do that by having everything tied up to where they're not going to make any money. Um, if you're hoping to get lucky, well, there's a lot of games I can hope I get the right card. Or I can hope this one situation happens. Or I can craft a situation to make it much more likely to happen. I can, as the majority shareholder take up, for instance, trade in a lot of my stocks to get much better shares in a bigger chain, and still have some shares I held just in case it comes out again, which it probably will, because, I'm, you know, unless it's towards in-game, there's a good chance. And I've made it attractive enough to the other players that they're going to be like, yeah, you know, I have a chance to compete with him. It's true he's got a little bit of a head start, but if he's not watching, I can go with that. Now, one thing I should add is there are two variants in the game that the original game rules, nor has any version since that I'm aware of, ever specified. And these are two core different ways to play the game, and they dramatically change the way the game plays. And this is to play the game with open or closed information for your personal assets. Right. Um, the game rules never define this, and as a result, there are groups of players who play it both ways. Um, I'll tell you why I play it the way I do. And I'm going to tell you this by giving you an experience with some unnamed people at Origins. <laughs> <laughs> so the names of the guilty or the names of the innocent have been withheld? In both cases, yes. <laughs> okay. All so, right. So uh, before we go on to that mm -hmm. story, though, can you just tell me real quick? Um, I'm trying to recall. How does the game end? Because uh, you talked about the end game. And, and I think it mm -hmm. ends when there's like no more legal placements or something like that. Is, is that true? Sort of. Um, the game rules say, and this is where you get into an iffy zone, and I'll, I'll explain this from the rest of the other one, it doesn't define, this is defined, but there's reasons why you don't want to play it this way with new players, and I'll explain that. The game ends when either one chain hits 41 tiles or larger, or all chains reach a point where they can't be merged in. Now, when a chain hits 11 tiles or larger, it can't be bought out. 
It just ah, can't. That's right. Okay. So um, when you hit that point, it's safe and secure. So if you get a point where all chains are safe and secure, or one chain gets 41 or larger, it could be ended. At that point, the player at the end of their turn, if they spot this, or if they think it's to their advantage, they could end it, or they could let it go and hope it comes around to the game and hope they can buy more stocks if there's more stocks out there. Now, there are reasons not to play this way with new players, and the reason is this, it could be ended thing confuses new players, and they don't get the strategy of it. So when I'm teaching it to new players, I pretty much say it hits 41, if it, uh, if it hits 41 or if all chains are safe, then we just stop at the end of that person's turn. The option where it could be stopped, and if the person decides to stop it, is honestly for more experienced players. And while okay. that is the official rules, I don't suggest you play with people who are not familiar with the game. Okay, all right. So it's better to have it just nice and defined and cut and dry, right? So it ends instantly, um, you know, End as of soon as turn, one of those two, right, those two conditions. Right. Okay, all right. So getting back to your story now, which I, I, I assume is going to probably be pretty amusing. So tell me about this uh, game with unnamed players at Origins. All right. This was uh, a couple of years ago, so it's unlikely that they'll remember this, but I do. So I'm a, well, obviously a huge Acquire fan, and every time I go to Origins, I try and drag it out and convince some people who will look at, I actually have a pretty fancy version, but even so, we'll look at a version of a game that they've ironically enough, never heard of, which is amusing to me because it's been out a long time, and get them to play it with me and teach them it the right way, because I'm sad to say not many people do. And um, I basically just lay out the box, and you get the little orange cone, you know, at the board gaming area kind of thing. And sure enough, sooner or later, some people come play. And this, there was a case where a gentleman came up and claimed he was, quote, an expert at Acquire, one of the best Acquire players ever. Nice. Uh-huh. And I should have seen that as a warning sign. I, I didn't. <laughs> I, I, I sh yeah, I should have seen that as a warning sign. I didn't, but I, I really I really should have seen that coming. So, anyways, um, with that in mind, um, this player... Uh, sat down, we convinced another gentleman who came up who was, you could tell he was a little bit of an introvert, he was kind of quiet, he was a very older gentleman, he he probably had at least 20 years on me, and he, from some things he said during the game, it became very apparent that I think he had played every possible version of it that ever existed, and knew okay. all the different, <laughs> like remember I mentioned some of the chains changed over time kind of thing, and which right, ones right. were back. He knew which chains had changed over time. He knew what year they had changed. He knew that, yeah, it was really interesting playing with him just to hear him just... He was kind of quiet, introverted. He wouldn't even look at us directly in the eyes, but he was a really good guy, honestly. Not, right. This and, is not a... Yeah, go ahead. And, and he didn't... He's not the guy who identified himself as the acquire expert. Mm -hmm. he, he was just very quiet, and he just clearly knew a lot about the game, but he didn't say, hi, I'm an expert in Acquire, <laughs> the way the other guy did. All right, so right. I think I see where this is going. All right, go go ahead. <laughs> All right, so um, we decided we were going to have a three-player game, which is not the best play of Acquire, but it does work with players who are experienced. I personally suggest Acquire as a four- to six-player game, it will work very well with three players, but only if the players know what they're doing, honestly. But they all said they did. So I didn't foresee any serious issues. 
<laughs> foolish, foolish me. So, anyways, um, we begin to play. And as the game progressed, the player in question, uh, who identified himself as the acquire expert, did every single mistake I've told you about, as well as a few more. He locked his money up into chains. He began to hope he would get the right tiles instead of incentivizing players to uh, give him the tiles he wanted, you know? Right, right. He then began trying to push players, including me specifically, to help him fix his mistakes and claiming it was my fault when I didn't. <laughs> oh, jeez. And he got so frustrated, he claimed I was losing. And this was, we were playing with what was called open information at the time. They both insisted on it, which I wasn't as keen on it. This convinced me after this experience I, why we shouldn't do this, because during the game, they both constantly had us check each other's hands to see how many stocks we had of a given kind. So this meant the game constantly stopped while they checked how many stocks do you have of this, how many stocks do you have of that, constantly. Right. But the truth is, because of the way the game flows, and because you can pick up stocks, for instance, in a trade-in, or stocks can be sold off at various points, it's not really an accurate way to tell things, and it gives you a false sense of information, to be truthful. Um, you're much better watching, generally, sort of how the game's moving than trying to figure out exactly how many stocks a person has. But, as a result, not only did the game take twice as long as usual, and that's, I'm sad to say, not an exaggeration. Right. But, towards the end of the game, this player was convinced, both me and him were losing, absolutely convinced of it. And, the thing is, is I can have half the stocks, or more than half the stocks in a given chain, and half the stocks in another chain, and one, because of the tile difference on the table, can be vastly more valuable than another. In fact, I can even have a fraction of stocks in a given chain. One rule I didn't mention is if no one else has any stocks in a chain, I get both the majority and minority shareholder bonus. Right, right, which is so, huge. Yeah, it is huge. I can have a fraction of stocks in a given chain, and if nobody else has any, or if people have very few compared to me. See, the ratio of stocks isn't how many I have. The ratio is how many I have compared to you. So when I'm buying stocks in a chain, if no one else is buying, there's no reason for me to keep buying. I've seen players do this so many times. They'll buy stocks in a chain one round, and no one else buys, right? Because they don't think it's near merge or anything, so whatever. And the player turns around the next round, they buy more stocks. And they turn around the next round, they buy more stocks. And this guy did this, actually. And he's heavily invested now in this chain. And no one else is. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, so, as you can imagine, this is a bit of a problem for him. And he begins to believe that we, we, meaning me and him, are both radically far behind. And he actually, on the Origins board game floor, begins to scream and yell. This wasn't helped by the fact that, uh, apparently during this, um, one of the very nice Cavs people, and they were great, honestly, came up. They were apparently randomly handing out board games that day. I don't remember what the game was, but they came up and they yelled, Who made the last merger? Which is, you know, a thing in a choir. And I had just happened to make a merger, and I said, I did, and they handed me a free board game, and he got mad about that, too. <laughs> and so, so there was nothing good about this experience for him, apparently. So he's convinced we're losing. I mean, somehow he's convinced that because I won't help him fix his problems, it's my fault. And in fact, for me to help him fix his problems would have cost me the game. I tried to point this out to him, but I was competing with the other guy, the nice, quiet gentleman I mentioned, who seemed right, to know right, everything about right, the game. right. We were we were in a fight to the death, truthfully. <laughs> and I'm like, 
I don't have time to help you right now. This guy's going to eat my lunch if I do, you know, kind of thing. And really good acquire players at the top levels, that's often how it is. They, they're, you can tell the better players because they usually take over the game. Now, I will say usually, not always, because other players who have no idea what they're doing can sometimes change the game state with what tiles they play in really weird ways that you're like, why would you ever do that, but we have to deal with it now kind of right, thing? Right, right, right. Which actually is probably better for new players in some ways because it gives the experienced players like setbacks they would never have imagined or thought of, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, because if, if a game... You seem to be implying that uh, you believe that Acquire uh, is a game that is... Uh, has a large degree of skill, right? I, I started off the show by saying I felt it felt lucky, but everything that you're describing seems to imply that there's a high degree of skill in the game. And so, much like other uh, strategy games, you know, you hear people talk about Puerto Rico all the time, you know, if the player, you know, the next player does this move, then everybody looks at them and says, you just, you know, lost the game, or you just gave the game to so-and-so, you know. Well, uh, and, and, that's, and that's because, you know, the game has been so sort of played and so um, analyzed that, you know, there clearly seem to be in that game sort of like optimal moves. And so you seem to be suggesting that, you know, an experienced player is perhaps going to make a move that the others are going to say, okay, I see why, you know, she did that. Or, um, yes, you know, okay, now that's going to open up this opportunity. That was very clever of her. Whereas a new player is going to be like, I don't know, and they're just going to pop a tile down, and you're going to be like, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. But now, like you said, you have to deal with it, right? You have to actually adapt to that which can actually be a way to kind of level the playing field is what I'm hearing you say, yes? Yeah, it's it's really interesting to play with new players. In my book, I love playing with new players because while they don't always win, I have seen them win sometimes when they pull up some really, again, different moves that you're like, why would you do that? Um, and sometimes they actually do really good moves accidentally. For instance, a really nasty move to do to an opponent, if you can pull it off, it is not uncommon to have two chains of roughly equivalent size beside each other. And it's not uncommon to see a person investing heavily in a chain in hopes of intentionally merging it to another. And a nasty move, that you can call it help, but it's not help. It's not help at all. It's very nasty. Is you can intentionally grow their chain without them wanting you to. Because now they can't merge it in. And they've got all this money locked up in it. Oh, uh, okay. All right. Yeah, that is very subtle, right? Oh, I, so I, I you, just helped you. Your stock value went up. Yeah. <laughs> but you didn't at all because now your chain is six and the one you were hoping to merge it with is five. And now you can't be swallowed by that one because you're now the larger chain. Am I understanding that correctly? Exactly. In this game, to some extent, particularly early to mid-game, is ran off the capital you have. And if you don't have capital, you're dead in this game. Which would explain why I did so poorly, because I did exactly what you were talking about earlier, which is I bought too much stock. So, you know, I kind of figured, well, you know, the stock is cheap. It's reasonable right now. I'm looking at the hand of tiles that I have, and I'm going to be able to grow this. And this is going to be a really big powerhouse chain. This is going to be great. I'm going to buy a lot of stock right now so that, you know, when that, when that comes to pass, it's going to be worth a fortune. The problem was... Nobody really, I made it too big too fast. Nobody was able to or wanted to merge with it, and I had no money. And, and this is what happened the last time I played. So I, I'm kind of hearing what you're saying, which is majority can be two. 
it doesn't have to be four or six shares of stock. It can be whatever it needs to be just so that you have more than anybody else at the table, right? That's a factor. There's also a weird little teamwork factor in Acquire that a lot of people don't notice. And I've been kind of saying it before, but I need to state it outright. When I'm playing, I don't just need to have me in charge of a given stock. And sometimes I don't even want to be in charge of a given stock. Maybe I'm managing multiple stock portfolios. Um, so sometimes, actually, what I want is I have four stocks maybe I'm involved with, right? And I would really like to be the majority of a stock, but it's just not viable because one of the things you can do every turn is buy stocks. And you can only buy three stocks. Now, they can be from any company. So I don't have, like, a company I'm part of. I can invest in any of the hotels. Right, right. But the thing is, is if I'm the only one invested in a stock, there's no one else that's incentivized to help me grow or merge that chain in or even help me in any way. So to some extent... I need to get somebody else on board. And sometimes if I've been involved in multiple chains and there's one I consider more valuable than another I'm willing to let go, I'm okay with backing away and becoming a minority shareholder and letting them take the lead because they're going to push that chain when I have other more important, if you will, fish to fry. Right. Would you say that that is analogous in any way to... Uh, I often find in games, I was just playing a game called Nippon, um, which is a relatively new game, and I absolutely love it. Um, and it has uh, that sort of area majority scoring. You know, first place, second place, third place, you get X number of points uh, during the scoring rounds. And I was also playing um, Glendrover's uh, Empires, Age, um, you know, Age of Discovery, um, which is another game which uses this area majority kind of scoring. And, you know, one of the things that I say to people when I'm teaching those games is I say, you know what, sometimes it's better to be second place in four than it is to be first place in one or two. And a lot of times my strategy in games like that is I, I don't need to be in first. I just need to be within striking distance so that if I have an opportunity later, I can pounce on it. But in the meantime, I'm perfectly happy being second place in four places while everyone else is sweating about being first in one or two. Do you think that there's any kind of comparison that we can make between an area majority game like that and a stock game like you're describing? In other words, is that analogous at all, do you think? That's exactly analogous. In point of fact, um, yes, being first is best, but you don't have to be. And sometimes, honestly, sometimes it's far easier to hold on to second place. And you have to invest far less capital. Remember, capital's king in this game. So that frees up more capital to be invested elsewhere. And uh, I've seen a, a case where I had a new player. Uh, actually, the guy I mentioned Origins did this one thing one time. He invest in a chain, and I invested in a chain. And then he just decided to keep on amping it up, but nobody else is buying stock in this chain. And I sat back, and I had three shares in the chain the whole game. And sure enough, when it finally came to its own, I had minority shareholder. <laughs> right, with just three, right? <laughs> with just three. He had, like, 15. Yeah, and I think that that's a real, I think it's a real danger, Gene. And I think that was a problem for me, is I played Acquire too early. Um, and, and I didn't have enough experience with it, maybe, because now that you're saying this, you know, I can clearly see some of the mistakes that I made. Okay, let's say that there are, how many shares of stock are there, say, for uh, Luxor or like one of the companies, one of the hotels? So how many shares are there? Every company has 25 shares, and, you know, they're well-named and all that. 
the only difference between one share of one company and another, another is the value of the shares. Remember I said there's some with the high and some of the low and right, some right. the middle? Mm-hmm. But they all have 25 shares. Right. And so what I did is I think one of the mistakes that I made is you know, I would I would kind of look at how many shares had been bought, how many shares are left, and I tried to do the math always to say, okay, so how many shares do I need to buy to guarantee that I am going to be the majority shareholder? And then I just bought and bankrupted myself, basically, right? Which is, uh, mathematically, it's it's a way to approach it, which is, okay, if there's this many shares, I need this many in order to be majority shareholder. I need 13. Okay, so if I can get 13 shares, I'm guaranteed to be in first place. But you can end up being first place of nothing, um, and you can be broke. And so I think that that's one of the things that, again, you know, that that uh, idea of I want to keep buying stock, I want to keep buying stock, when it's really not necessary in terms of, of the game. Um, and that was probably one of my early mistakes, kind of reflecting back on what I did, was I was trying to hit a magic number whereby I knew, well, you know, they've got six, um, she's got five, so therefore, if I have this many, I'm going to be guaranteed to be majority shareholder. And I ended up spending too much money buying a stock that I really didn't need to because no one else seemed interested in buying it, but I didn't notice that. W- would you say that that sounds pretty accurate? I'd say that sounds dead accurate. And I, I didn't get to finish something I said earlier, but I'm going to bring it back up. Remember I said they were constantly checking the cards and all the information? Um, there are two ways to play acquire. One is the open thing where they can do that, and the other is what's called closed information, where the stocks that are out publicly, everybody can check, but you can't check how many stocks I have. That game plays much better. There's much less tension and anger, and every game ever played is played <laughs> sufficiently better. Okay. And it, I don't know why, but I've seen with the the open information, you see people start to get frustrated. Where the closed information, they can't tell who's ahead, so you don't see that kind of reaction sometimes. And and it feels like everyone has a chance. You don't see that sort of like, uh, I can't believe you know this one guy's killing us kind of thing. Um, so the closed information, not only does it play substantially better, but it also plays noticeably faster because they aren't constantly checking that. Right, right. It's not a matter of sitting there and trying to math it out and calculate it, yes? Um, yeah, I... This is a game where you really can't calculate every stock at the table. When I play, I don't try and keep track of how much everybody has. The only stocks I even concern myself with are the ones I'm invested in. If I'm not invested in a stock, I don't know if you have two in it, I don't know if you have ten. If I'm not invested... I'm paying very little attention to that stock. I keep vague kind of idea of how much you've been picking up, like I've been buying a lot of that or maybe a little of that. But the truth is, if I'm not invested, I'm not going to be the majority of my narrative shareholder. It's just not going to be that way. So you feel this is a game where you kind of pick your horse and uh, you know you run with it, yes? Absolutely. And you, you really have to pay attention to the other players at the table, but only when they start interfering with what you're doing, or vice versa, when you start interfering with them. You need to make sure that you're picking your battles. You can't fight every battle and win. You can fight some and win, but not every battle. 
So this would be where that kind of rule of thumb is, you know, pick your battle that you're willing to fight and then let yourself uh, slide to a minority position, uh, perhaps uh, on another front, Um, you know, knowing that you might have the opportunity later to come back and grab it, uh, you know, later in the game or, you know, that you've uh, managed to make a tidy profit even as minority shareholder. Yes, absolutely. There's times I've even convinced people to buy far more shares than they should simply based on trade in. Um, sometimes the trade-in value for trading from one stock to another is just such a noticeable jump that you just have to take it. You know what I mean? Right, right. And so I'll trade in a hefty bunch of shares because I'm like, well, if nothing else, I'm going to get this huge trade-in value at the end of the game. And so I put myself in a position to go for something like minority, maybe. So the minority shareholder, well, seeing this, of course, reacts to it, and he buys up. Majority shareholders, he's the minority buy-up. They think he's coming after them. They buy up. I didn't actually buy any more shares in what is now becoming a very expensive and large stock, and I'm off somewhere else investing my money. Right, <laughs> and they're, right. They're, they're sort of almost in this feedback loop. It's kind of funny to watch. So that, you know, again, you're, you're talking about this kind of, um, uh, the, the fact that open information games um, can tend to kind of lock people up, yes? Like, it, you, you know, people get to the point where they're so sort of, um, you know, stressed about the calculation of it, um, almost like I was describing, that they, they end up actually losing the game um, and, and, you know, having a miserable time and spending way too much time uh, on their turn trying to math things out before they make their move, yes? Absolutely. The closed information game, the, the information from a stock is out there. It's always public in terms of the general stock. But what my stock is, the stock I hold, is, is a... I don't know how to describe it except to say it's a radically better game and noticeably faster. It can be as much as half the time as as a open information game. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, you know, I know that there's lots and lots of games out there where this has been uh, a very uh, vibrant and uh, <laughs> very lively discussion, uh, you know, whether or not people play open or closed information. There's, you know, so many games, uh, you know, where people kind of talk about this. So, uh, but this one, you don't really see, you know, you, you have firmly come down on this closed information side of the fence. Would you say, based on your experience, that most people seem to prefer it that way, or do you you find that it's it's kind of evenly split what's been your experience like looking at the community how do people tend to approach this game do most agree with you or no i found it's pretty evenly split um the way i've seen it handled honestly the accepted way to handle it is when you sit down at the table um if no one knows what they're doing you could just tell them this is the way it is that's great but if people know what they're doing you actually need to discuss before the game starts. Are we playing open or closed information? And most times I'm happy to say they're okay with playing closed information. But I have seen, as in the game I mentioned, Origins, where you have a group of players who insist on playing open information. The game still plays well, but you do see players who start to put uh, false hope in the quote amount of stocks. When again, stock values or even the amounts can shift. I can have next to nothing in a particular chain you can have my small little two-tile chain be bought out by your big, you know, 22-tile chain. Right. I can have, because I knew it was going to happen. In fact, maybe even set it up. I've done that a lot. I may have just have had 10 stocks in that, just because I knew this was going to happen. Not because I wanted the majority, although that's nice too, because I wanted cheap stocks. Then I promptly turn all those 10 stocks into a two-for-one ratio, 
into this what is now like uh, 23, 24, 24 child chain, you know, just that kind of thing. Right. So now you just got all this Hilton stock, you know, yes. for this little, uh, uh, you know, uh, tiny stock from this little, you know. Uh, so you're saying that, you know, you like to kind of set up these little hotel chains kind of in the way or in the path of the expansion of these juggernauts and then buy up a lot of shares in this cheap kind of company so that when inevitably it ends up getting bought simply because it's in the way that you're going to end up uh, making out on the deal. Is is that, uh, am I reading that correctly? Absolutely. And I can push myself to where I have a real shot at now becoming a minority or if no one's paying attention, if I keep on doing this with multiple chains, even majority shareholder. So in an open refreshing game, if someone like looks at my stock on a given turn and they're like, well, you got nothing in here. I'm good. And it like four turns later, it could have changed dramatically. Right. So you're saying that even exchanging two for one, you can end up getting yourself in a position where you can challenge for a majority shareholder, even though you didn't pay the exorbitant prices that, you know, this large kind of, uh, um, you know, profitable hotel chain uh, would cost you in terms of stock. So you're able to kind of get the shares on the cheap by being absorbed by, um, you know, the larger kind of luxury company. Yes. And... I get the bonuses for the majority shareholder multiple times as I merge multiple companies in. Oh, that's true, too. I didn't think about that. So, yeah, yeah, because you you would be majority shareholder and those being absorbed, right? For the most part, yes. And so you can really work this. There are two strategies, essentially, when you boil them down when it comes to your mergers. And the strategies are either to hold stocks in hopes of constantly placing little chains out in front of big ones, um, this works especially well if you've had, if someone does like you did and they buy out a chain early in the game and then people just grow that chain because why not, right? Um, I'm never going to get majority in your chain. You've got it. Congrats. What I can do is I can hold stock in these small chains and constantly get these bonuses as I feed them as you grow right through the board. And I'll end up with more money than you, I promise you, because I get all these bonuses. The other option is if there isn't a huge chain that's constantly locked up, I can start trading in for it. And by the time it gets really big, I might be the majority shareholder. So those are the two strategies. Either I can sort of feed these small chains into the big one, constantly getting bonuses, or I can actually sort of take over the big chain as it grows. In the beginning and middle of the game, you can do those kinds of moves I'm talking about. At the end of the game, you do want to be in the big chains, but that's very much end game. Um beginning and middle of the game, honestly, you want to be the guy who's basically just churning hotels into the bigger ones and making all the money you can. So you're basically chumming the big shark, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. I'm the upstart, and I get it to a point where I'm just competitive enough that, you know, the big company's taking notice of me, and I'm cutting the market share, and they come in and buy me out, and they give me a chunk of change, and they say, we're done. I say, you're right, I'm done, and I go start another one. Right, right. So um, let's talk a little bit about that end game strategy because you've you've talked quite a bit and and we've managed to discover a lot of the things that I did wrong when I played the game, um, but let's talk a little bit about that end game strategy. When do you really need to shift gears? You know, because you seem to be implying that late in the game. It's going to be to your benefit if you can to kind of get into or run or be at least minority, if not majority shareholder in one of these big hotel chains that are now sprawling across the board. So how do you maneuver yourself in order to do that? Well, if it was a game, remember I mentioned the two core strategies, if it was a game where someone had it all tied up with a big chain, 
there's no way to maneuver yourself into that chain. So instead, you constantly feed your hotels in until endgame. And then you start cashing out. You start saying, well, this, this chain's not going to get back on the board. I'm just going to take cash value. I'm not going to hold the stock. Um, if it's the other way, if you're able to cash in, if you're able to trade in sort of thing, where you can trade in stocks at two for one and you know aim towards majority or minority sort of subtly or even in multiple chains, um, that's exactly how you do it. You start trading in. In-game starts up, what'll happen is you'll notice a certain point. Remember I said these are all tiles on a grid. Right. Where the grid starts to fill up. And it becomes very obvious that only one or two more chains on the border, maybe even none. And it's not in everyone's best interest to start a chain. For instance, if there's only one company out there, uh, in the version I have, the 1999 version, there's a hotel chain called Hydra, which just amuses the living daylights out of me. It's not... <laughs> sorry, about, sorry about that. Let me redo that. I cut out. It's not any other version, um, this hotel chain called Hydra. Um, so I don't know why it's in this one, but it, it amuses me to no end. So... Anyways, um, with that being said, the Hydra chain, let's say, for instance, you have your 13 shares, right? So I'm sitting there watching you with your 13 shares, and I've got nothing in this chain, and it's the only one I can put on the board, and I've got the only tile to do it. What do you think the odds are that I'm going to play that chain out? I would have to say pretty low. Wouldn't it be pretty low? Because you, you, you're not going to be able to help yourself much at all with that, right? That's exactly right. So there's a certain point where you need to recognize either you're not going to have an option to put the chains back out or other people just aren't going to be incentivized if you're still under those stocks. And you start to see where the tiles start to open the board. There's not a lot of room for not a placement. There's not a lot of advantaged people. And to be blunt, if you're playing the strategy where someone's already tied up the big chain, you need to cash out. If you're playing the other strategy, you need to start actually trading in or even, and this is a fun little strategy, but it's worthwhile doing in-game. Um, usually you'll start to see, like, if it's multiple companies that aren't locked up, you'll start to see two or three big ones instead of just one. And sometimes you can sort of maneuver yourself into majority of, like, one of them, but maybe not all of them. So then you start intentionally feeding these other small companies, even if they're not yours, because it's towards in-game, right, into that one company, because you're trying to make those shares worth a lot of money, right? Right, right. So you're like, you're like, well, my chain, maybe it wasn't that big when I started, but now I'm going to feed all these things into it. And so you're just, and your opponents, if they're smart, they're trying to do the same thing. <laughs> so there's a competition of now, it isn't like, it isn't just a benefit of who can get snapped up. But it's this benefit of, like, how many can I snap up being the majority of this chain? Right, right. Well, you know, it sounds like there are definitely a few different sort of overarching strategies um, that you can employ during, uh, you know, the game. Um, would you say that because of the the nature of this game, which you have managed to do a pretty good job, Gene, of, of convincing me is a lot less luck dependent than I thought. I mean, you will, you do still have to deal with that with those tile draws, but you know, it, it looks like there's probably more going on there than I thought. Well, may may I may I make a suggestion regarding the tile draws? Sure, sure. The tile draws are similar to a hand of cards, and like hand of cards, you now have choices, and some of those choices are good, and some aren't. And you can get something I should mention, which I didn't, called temporary uh, unplayable tiles or dead tiles. Um, there's been some rule changes to the game over the years, but if you get a dead tile, according to the most modern rule changes, uh, if you find an old version, we'll say this, but the newer ones certainly will. 
you essentially show it to the other players. It's unplayable. It's between two chains that are living or larger and can't be merged. Everyone agrees it's a dead tile, and you place it face down, which makes it obvious the chains aren't connected, but you've got your hand, you draw another one. Not a big deal. If you get a temporary one, which means if you have all seven chains out there and you can't start another one, you can't play that tile, so you have to hold it. You, Unless you have all of your hand that are temporary, you can't play them, you just have to hold them. Now, chances are you will be able to play them later, so it's not a big deal. Theoretically, this could happen, although I've never seen it, but if for some reason you got all your tiles that were unplayable, you can show them to the other players, they agree they're unplayable, you can put them in the box, and you pull a whole new set of tiles, and those tiles are out of the game. But that's extremely rare. But, with that being said, you'll have a lot of times where you have tiles that you're like, well, I have all these tiles, and there's no connection to anything, and what do I do, particularly towards the beginning of the game? And the truth is, the tiles in the middle are much more likely to give value to you for mergers later on. So you want to get rid of tiles that are towards the edges and near nothing else. Because chances are, they're not going to help you with mergers later. And if you have a tile that's right next to something, for instance, and there's nothing next to it, you can hold on the tongue in hopes that someone will play a chain beside it, and now you have the merger tile. Right, right. So you actually can make very strategic decisions regarding which tiles you play. Okay, all right. So there, there's ways that you can kind of get rid of dead tiles, which I did not know. That I just didn't know in general. Um, but I do see what you're saying about trying to play the tiles to the edges and save the ones that are more towards the middle or that are next to an existing chain because, you know, maybe you'll be able to merge. So... What would you say, um, if we're going to accept that this is a, a game of skill, which I'm, I'm willing to you know, concede at this point, what would you say about the problem that you seem to be describing, which is the difference between an experienced player and a new player? Now, obviously, if you're teaching the game and you're an experienced player, you know, you're not going to be a jerk about it and just you know, stomp all over people. But at the same time, you really do seem to be implying, unless I'm misreading you, that an experienced player is usually going to do much, much better than a new player. So how can you approach this game as a, uh, a mentor to new players or as a new player yourself so that you don't get that sort of intimidation factor? You know, Because there are certain games, Gene, that you know, if I'm approaching it, um, you know, like let's, let's take a, an 18xx uh, game. Mm -hmm. If I'm playing an 18xx game for the first time with people who've played before, uh, there's there's a little bit of an intimidation factor there, right? Because they kind of understand all of the interlockings and and the way this this whole thing is working, and I'm kind of like floundering, you know, like I'm I'm like in the pool, you know, in the deep end <laughs> with my swimmies on, and I'm just kind of oh, splashing boy. around, right? Whereas these other people are just kind of swimming naturally and gracefully, right? I find that games that, that have this kind of thing, um, it, it can be a barrier to entry for new people, um, and yet the people who love the games are desperate to recruit people um, to play it because it's a game that they love, which kind of sounds like the situation you're in every year You know when you take your beloved uh, acquire to a con, and even though it's an old game, you try to get somebody to come and play it, right? So what would be your advice about both sides of that issue? Well, the new player, I mentioned this earlier, just touched on it lightly, has an advantage that the old player can't take away. And that advantage is, I don't know how to say this nicely, but they do random things. <laughs> right? And it does change things more than they might imagine. It has a real effect on the game. And 
it isn't just like, oh, I have a tie I want to get rid of. There's times where there's no reason for them to do it. And they'd be like, yeah, I'll merge these two chains. And you're like, you have no stock in either chain. Yeah, I just wanted to do it. And you're like, okay. You know, and, and they do things like this. And you're like, okay, uh, I'm not I'm not being a... Wow, okay, sure. You can do that. And And because of the random nature of what they do... They take a game that for players who know the game and know how it should flow and know that this should happen, and they provide really random things that happen, which can cause extremely experienced players, including myself, to lose. I've seen it happen. Right, lose, right. Lose badly sometimes. So their advantage is that they are new. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, having said that, even with them doing what they do, experienced players will tend to win... 75 to 80% of the time. And I'm not I'm not being overly dramatic. That's just about the numbers. I've seen it. So even with them being random, randomly they can throw me off my game about 25% of the time, and I'm just like, oh boy, you know what I mean? Right, but the truth right. is, 75% of the time, it's not going to go that way. So that doesn't mean they can't win. They can. And actually, one out of four ain't bad. But again, it's, it's a little lower than probably like for newer for newer players, I think on the other side as a teacher, one of the most awesome things you can do, and not everyone can afford this, but if they can, is to bling up the game. Because the game does look it looks like a spreadsheet and it's not. It's anything but in some ways. It's very dramatic when you get involved with it. So I have a fancy version, I won't lie, and just me being me, I've actually got metal coins for my coins and all kinds of things. And when I play it out it looks epic, trust me. Nice, nice. <laughs> but for some reason, and I, I am into it too. I mean, I, I love my Go board, which has little stones on this. Everybody's into aesthetics, you know. Everyone wants to see something that's pretty, that looks good on the table. So that that's a real help. I mean, it gets them interested in the game. It's colorful. But in terms of the gameplay itself, something I've done when I play with players, and you have to kind of get over a little suspicion with them, because again, Acquire is a game where, to some extent, you're cooperating with at least one other person in each chain, or you should be. Whereas a lot of competitive games of this nature you're not cooperating with anybody. Um, so it's kind of a little different, and they aren't used to that idea where I might give them advice that's helpful to them. <laughs> right, right. So there's been a lot of times, as a more advanced player, when I'm introducing new players to the game, even when I know it's going to hurt me, and I've done this, I'll stop and I'll say, okay, here's your options, and here's the situations that this would work in differently, as opposed to what I'm telling you right now. And I'm going to step back and like to make a decision, but I just gave you all the information you do this. And, and I've, it takes a little longer to teach that way, to be truthful. It takes what should be about a 60-minute game and turns into a 90-minute game, even with closed information. Right. But the truth is, by the time they're done playing one game of Acquire with me, I've never had a player walk away and say, I don't know why that happened. They're always like, that was a really interesting game. Now, has it cost me the game a couple times? Yeah, it has. Having said that, as you say, I love Acquire. I want people to play Acquire. <laughs> right, right. So who cares, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, again, I've talked about that before on the show, you know, that, that idea of being a steward of the game and putting your own ego aside and saying, you know, hey, if I want someone to like this game and play this game with me, it's not going to do me any good to beat them by, you know, a jillion points because then they're going to look at that and say, huh, yeah, congratulations secretly inside they're like screaming at you and saying that game sucks i'm never going to play that again and so you know it, well, it really well you know doesn't behoove wrong. you yeah yeah i might still beat them 
Oh, sure. I'm going to explain to them every step of the way and give them an opportunity to be. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, and we're all competitive. I don't mean to, you know, imply that, uh, you know, you don't uh, lose all of your competitiveness and, you know, uh, I'm some sort of saint because I'm saying I don't care. You know, obviously I care, but I care more about having people that will want to play the game again, you know. Yes. And I find that, you know, games that can be swingy like that, um, not swingy because of luck, um, as I kind of thought originally, but swingy because an experienced player is going to, you know, pretty much wipe the floor with you most of the time. Um, it can, you know, leave a bad taste in, in the new player's mouth and they can be like, ah, you know, I just don't want to play that again. Um, you know, and, and you have to have someone who is willing to kind of do what you're talking about, which is explain why you're doing what you're doing and outline, you know, outlining kind of the options and, you know, not playing the game for the person, but saying, here are some things you could do. These might be some reasons why you might want to do them. Um, you know, these two are good. This one, maybe not so much, but hey, you know, maybe you've got a plan that I haven't thought of and now go, you know, do whatever it is that you want to do. Um, you know, if that person's going to have, as you just stated, a much more positive experience with the game and have a lot more fun. So, um, you know, new players, you're recommending definitely for all players actually to play closed and your, you know, closed information and you're recommending that, you know, you, um, try to kind of make the, the small companies and put them in the way of the larger companies might be a good new player strategy, um, you know, to kind of get your feet wet with the game and, uh, your advice about that sort of, uh, how to deal with or conceptualize how to deal with the hand of tiles that you're given as far as looking at them from a location perspective. Um, not so much from a building perspective, like, cause that was kind of what I did. I'll be honest, Gene, like I, I got this handful of tiles. I'm like, none of these are connected to anything. So I'm not going to be able to do anything. Like I could plop down one tile and then this tile is way over there and this tile's over here. How am I really going to like start building a hotel chain when I, I'm not lucky like, you know, Justin is. Look, he got two that were right next to each other. And look at him. He's off and running. And I got this hand of crappy tiles. And, you know, you, you get kind of upset about it because you, you feel like, you know, well, I can't do anything. And any time that a player feels like they can't do anything in a game leads to that kind of frustration. But you're kind of outlining a different way to look at that, which I appreciate because I'll be honest, you know, that was very frustrating for me as a, as a you know, a, a first-time player and a second-time player, you know, looking at this hand of tiles and saying, oh, well, crap, look at what I got. This is terrible. And it just colors your perception from the get-go. Um, and, and that can really be damaging to a person's impression of a game. Uh, yes? Absolutely. In, in point of fact, if a new player wants to succeed at this game, I'm sure I haven't outlined every possible thing they can do. But if they listen to this podcast and they employ the strategies over two or three games that I suggest, and they'll probably need to re-listen to it a couple times to get everything I said, the truth is, is they'll be competitive far quicker than you think they will. The first game is the roughest for some reason. But if they listen to it and they get the strategies, about three games in, they should be pretty competitive. And they'll find they're like, wow, look at this kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I can see where the tile issue comes up. But what the funny part is, if you draw a tile, for instance, and you maybe you make Hydra as an example. Again, I love that example. So <laughs> maybe you make Hydra. And I happen to have a town next year. Yeah, I can grow your hotel chain. Or I could wait. I could sit there and hope that someone else builds another chain near it, and now I'm holding the merchant tile. 
Yeah, I mean, that clearly, you know, is is an interesting decision for the person who has that tile. For the person who just started Hydra, okay, (laughs) and can't place anything, like, adjacent to it and seems like they're kind of stuck, um, you know, it it, it can feel frustrating. They get a free stock just for starting it, which is a bigger bonus than you think it is, particularly if it grows. Um, What was a very cheap stock for starting the hotel can actually become very expensive later on and that's just thank you for starting the chain that's true yeah that is your compensation kind of uh for for starting the hotel and i kind of i forgot about that but yeah i mean i I think you've um you know answered my questions about that and and my reluctance to kind of get behind this game which is why i still don't own it um dare i say i have not acquired it ha you see what i did there well i'll tell you i'll tell you what jeff (laughs) the uh the cheap version out there they had they produce currently is only like 20 bucks on amazon that is that is true that is true um but i i would probably seek out you know a, a little bit uh nicer of a version um but uh, yeah, you can certainly, as you said, you know, you spend twenty bucks, you invest in it, you try it. Uh, if it's not for you, then you know you've only invested twenty dollars in it. If it is for you, then you can kind of do that uh, hunt to try to find one of the sort of sought-after versions of the game because, you know, as you said, um, it doesn't look like much. Um, the experience isn't in the aesthetics of it. The experience is in. Uh, the gameplay itself, and the interaction between the players. Um, You know, you're describing a game that is very richly interactive, which is, you know, kind of uh, increasingly unusual um, nowadays. You know, a lot of games are what we call, you know, head-down games, where you're kind of concerned pretty much only with what you're doing, and you're not really worrying so much about the other players. You're just trying to optimize yourself better than everybody else. However, in Acquire, um, you know, so much of what you're doing is going to depend on other players. And as you said, there's even a little bit of partnership aspects of it, temporary alliances, if you want to think of it that way, that you're going to forge during the game, which makes it much more interactive than usual. Um, Is that, I mean, what would you pin if you had to pick what would you pin the enduring kind of nature of this game to? Like, what, what, what does it? Is it the interaction? Is it the, you know, really amazing amount of variety considering you just have the same static board, kind of? It's the same grid. Um, the tiles come out differently, of course. But, you know, you got the same companies, fixed number of shares. Uh, what is it? you know, that makes this game one that we're still talking about, even though it came out in 1964. If you're willing to leave the aesthetics off the table, and I'm sad to see you kind of have to for most versions, um, I think it's the whole package. I think it's the the stocks bit. Although, to be accurate, I should correct one thing. It says stocks in the game, and everyone says this is a stock game. And it is, but not in the sense of, like, Wall Street stocks. These are stocks of a commodity. The commodity is this business. But it doesn't move up and down like Wall Street stocks. It moves more like a commodity. Like when a commodity actually is more valuable, that's when the price goes up. So this is more of a commodity stock market than a traditional stock market. But against that sort of commodity stock market, it's the, um, as you described, sort of the limited alliances slash partnerships that you end up making people, sometimes even people that you're directly competing against to win, which is really interesting. Um... It's this sort of situation where you're hoping to pull off a clever move that nobody sees coming and maybe trade it and now you're the majority shareholder 
Or maybe someone thought they were going to be smart and buy out a chain and you just let them do it. And then you just feed all these small chains one after another into this big chain, just helping them grow, which is increasing their value the entire time. But you're getting bonus after bonus as majority shareholder. Um, it's these moves that people don't see coming. These these The game really has a lot of these just sudden turns and changes that they're either random for the new player or for the experienced player. They're very much something, yeah, I thought this was going to happen. I'm playing this out my way. And not every other player expects what you're going to do. Or they're just, you know, there's times where it's just the opposite, where you know a tile could be in some other player's hands. And, yeah, sometimes you, you're kind of betting they're going to play it based on their actions. But there's sometimes they'll blindside you. Like, you didn't see it coming. And you're like, whoa, you know, where'd that come from? And it's it keeps you on your toes. It's really interesting. It's really engaging. With players who know what they're doing, it's one of the most engaging games I've played. People laugh, and they joke, and they have fun, and uh, it's it's just an amazing game, um, and the whole game, I mean, we're talking, again, a $20 game, card games nowadays cost more than that, and in this game, not does it have all this in it, which is pretty amazing, but we're talking, even for a long game, and that's a long game of it, a 90-minute playtime. Yeah, that's definitely a selling point uh, in many ways is is the playtime because a lot of times games that uh, are relatively deep in strategy or gameplay or interaction tend to go a little longer than that, yes? Yeah, and I mean, a 90-minute playtime with a price point that's well, so very low, I mean, I find it hard to see how it's still not a staple. I mean, in, in terms of sales, it, it is, but in the hobby community if you will a lot of people you know they're so focused on the latest thing i think scythe is the most popular recent one and you know within a year some of it is remembered but a lot of it's not and this game as you say has an enduring community that still loves it still follows it and 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 there's a reason for that well you know gene i want to thank you for um you know talking about this game reaching out and uh you know, suggesting that we do a show about it because it certainly is a venerable game that's uh, worthy of uh, a lot of attention and discussion. And, you know, you've really outlined some uh, strategy tips and advice for new players, experienced players, and made a good case for why this kind of ugly duckling um, is actually, you know, one that you should probably try and keep and treasure or at least seek out, find somebody who knows how to play it, um, you know, learn from them, have a, have a great learning game, and then see whether or not you get bit by the bug um you know i know i'm certainly uh, willing to try it again after you know talking with you about this but before we sign off i, I do want to ask you you know is there anything else uh, about the game that you'd like to maybe talk about or or maybe actually something about the game you don't like other than the aesthetics of course which we've already covered um is there any other you know anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to maybe talk a little bit about before uh, we wrap it up well, I uh, about the game, I, I tend to like two types of games, and this does fall into one of the categories. But the other category, I like sort of games that have some beautiful abstracts, like Go, for instance. But the other category of games I like is games that are very thematic. And I've always wished Acquire... I think the theme is sort of already kind of there, but it's not really fleshed out. And I've just always imagined, for instance, Acquire fleshed out with this great theme of... I don't know if you ever watched Deep Space Nine? Oh yeah, sure. Alright, excellent. Well, Acquire had this, uh, this, not does it, it feel a lot like some of the things you see playing in Quark's Bar in Deep Space Nine, but the theme practically screams for it. I mean, its name is Acquire. I mean, the rules of acquisition. Right, and right. I just, I just see this in my head, this beautiful board that looks well, kind of like a Ferengi board version of this. 
and people playing with, uh, you know, the Fringy had the, the big metal bars kind of thing, you know? Yes, the, the latinum, bars. yes. Yeah, the latinum. And, and uh, so people playing with the latinum bars and it going around the table and maybe little, like, quotes from the rules of acquisition on the bottom of each card, like, once you have their money, never give it back, and things like that. <laughs> and, or war is good for business, peace is good for business, you know, that kind of thing. Right, and right. It just, the theme could be so awesome. And I keep on telling myself, someday I'm going to make me a personal version of this. And I've never gotten around to it, but it would be awesome, wouldn't it? I, I think you certainly found a a setting that would really work for it. Um, you know, as you said, it, it kind of fits perfectly there. And uh, I could see, you know, someone uh, maybe trying to get the IP for that and, and uh, produced a, uh, an interesting kind of sci-fi uh, Star Trek themed uh, version. That would be that would definitely bring the theme more to life. But, you know, it's a, a Kickstarter outback. Absolutely. Let me absolutely. Cut out there. But, That's you know, a Kickstarter outback. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but to your point, um, you know, the other thing I'd say, Gene, is that, you know, this is a game like uh, the other day I was at um, a friend's house playing some games and uh, Stephen and some of his friends were playing uh, Vegas Showdown, you know, and I always thought to myself, like, Vegas Showdown is a pretty good game, but it's like the components are just garbage and the presentation is terrible. And I thought, you know, Vegas Showdown has been around for a long time. I can't believe no one has tried to kind of fix it and do a Kickstarter or a reprint with just really nice updated components. And, you know, I think people would really enjoy the experience more if they kind of had a little bit more to kind of visually latch onto. And, you know, I think I would put a choir in the exact same boat, you know, it just, it's amazing that a Sid Saxon game, um, that's been around this long that has a lot of fans and it has a built-in base you know, if somebody were to do a nice version of it, even a, a reprint of the version you were talking about, the little plastic buildings, you know, that kind of fit over the tiles, people would buy that. I, I, I have no doubt that they would buy it. But, you know, again, you know, you have to look at who has the license and, you know, what are they interested in doing with it? And, you know, unfortunately, right now, I think we're dealing with, you know, a company that owns the property but doesn't really necessarily see the potential for you know that kind of a deluxe sort of a, a treatment for the game which is a shame because you know there are plenty of people who would look at that and just say i'm not going to bother it looks very uninspiring as you said it looks like a spreadsheet you know it's a grid i don't want to play a game on a grid you know i want to play something that looks you know uh more engaging more appealing it's going to draw me in and it's kind of a shame because you know what you've spent the last hour talking about is a very very dynamic game and so people who are giving it a chance are feeling that dynamism and are being drawn into it and say, oh, yeah, I want to play that again. You know, unless they don't understand what's going on, which is kind of where I think I was. Um, but if you don't, if you're looking at taking that plunge and you're just walking by and you see someone like yourself with a little cone saying, looking for players, and then next to you is someone setting up you know, a beautiful game like Viticulture or something, you know, a lot of people are going to be like, oh, yeah, I've heard about that Viticulture. I'm going to go play that because, you know, Acquire does kind of look like the ugly duckling next to it. Um, and it's kind of a shame um, because there must be something to what you're saying because of how long the game's been around. So, 
you know, I want to thank you for being such a great ambassador for the game and explaining to people out there who maybe haven't given it a shot. Maybe they have passed it by because it looks so dry. It looks Sahara dry. And now you've kind of maybe made the case that this is something that maybe everybody should try. And even though my experience was not one where I kind of played it a couple of times and said, oh, yeah, I want to play this again, I kind of set it aside. It was one that I kind of wanted to try because, hey, it's been around for a long time, and that's kind of the the overarching theme of, of the long view anyway. So I'm very grateful that you reached out, and I want to thank you very much for agreeing to be on the show tonight, Gene. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's been my pleasure. So um, I want to say uh, thanks to Gene and thanks, of course, to my sponsor, GameSurplus.com. If you are interested in Acquire after listening to uh, this episode, uh, go and check it out and uh, see if uh, you can place an order with GameSurplus. And please remember the hashtag, which is uh, hashtag GameSurplusImports, the number four and the letter U, uh, to enter the contest for the uh, free game of Flick 'em Up. So for Gene and myself, I want to say thanks to everybody out there for listening listening and have a great night.